jabless, you fawning borrowers. Have you been having a lovely, a lovely gentle week? Have you been having good crack? Huh? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Um. So, this is episode number 55. And I believe the date is October 24th. Which means that we have passed our one year fucking anniversary for this podcast. We started it a year ago on October 17th as as a way to launch as a way to to launch my book my book of short stories and this podcast originally I only intended it to be a couple of episodes long I didn't particularly expect it to have a lot of listeners either but here we are and it's great crack checking in with you every single fucking week I love it um, I like how it's developing. I can't wait to see where we'll be in a year's time. It's got nice momentum. It's... I like the surprise of <clears throat> not really knowing what I'm going to talk about next week. Do you know? I like the joy of that. I like the joy of a little thought coming into my head and going, I'm going to save that one for the podcast next week. Um, so thank you very much for coming along for the journey and having crack with me and listening and recommending it to your friends and fucking giving it reviews and all of this carry on you know thank you so much I really really appreciate it and yeah I just did not think a year later I'd be here with the fucking podcast and we'd have nearly a million listeners a month holy fuck from all around the world. Ridiculous. But let's keep it going. Uh, so last week. Last week was a mad one. I enjoy. Actually I, I liked last week. It was a good crack. You know there was a bit of chat about body image. Bit of chat about exercise. Um, and some chat about Buddhism. And asceticism. Asceticism. A weird thing happened. This week. And it harks back to a previous podcast. I was talking about... This was about, I don't know, 40 podcasts ago. I was talking about UFOs. And asking ye, have ye ever seen a fucking UFO? So last night, I went about out the back garden. And looked up into the sky. And what I saw was... A very bright, flashing object in the horizon. Okay? And it was... Moving slowly in one direction, getting really bright, disappearing, getting really bright, disappearing. And then around it were smaller flashes of lights. So I'm looking at it and I'm going, here we go, it's a UFO. I'm finally, after all these years, I'm seeing a fucking UFO. It sounds like all the other UFOs I've had described to me. I can't explain it because a plane doesn't move like that. It's disappearing behind clouds. It's getting bigger. It's going small. And what the fuck are those small things around it? So, took out my camera to take a photograph of it. Looked at the phone. I said, right, that's pretty unremarkable. Just looks like a star. But in reality, it was ridiculous. And then I remembered I have this app on my phone. And the app is called Night Sky. 
And what Night Sky does is, it's good crack actually. The Night Sky app, you point it up at the sky and it kind of uses augmented reality and it shows you what all the stars are. And it shows you everything that's up in the sky. So when I pointed it at the UFO, turns out that it was not an alien spacecraft. It was a satellite. Specifically, one called uh, SL-14RB, which isn't even a satellite. It's an old rocket body of, of a Soviet rocket from like the fucking 80s that's just floating around in space as space rubbish and then directly behind it there also happened to be a meteor shower happening at the same time so this you know lump of rocket body which I assume is about the size of a bus is floating up there in space um, on the stratosphere I assume you'd call it the stratosphere and it, it was moving pretty fast, so that means it was it was close enough to the Earth, you know, it was up there. So basically, what, what ha- what's happening is this bus-sized piece of rocket rubbish is spinning. Every time it spins, it, it happened to perfectly reflect a lump of the sun's light, which is the reason why I thought it was growing big and disappearing, growing big and disappearing. It was just a perfect reflection pointing directly at me from thousands of miles away. And then the smaller lights around it were a meteor shower. So it was two ridiculous coincidences happening at once, which presented to me as most definitely a fucking alien spacecraft. And it was just amazing that I could reach into my pocket and pull out this app. And it was able to tell me, not that's a satellite, not they're meteors. And... Yeah, I just thought I'd share that with you, you dirty pricks. It was great. Um, and I didn't need to scare the fuck out of myself. Tinfoil hatting, you know? If I didn't have this app, I'd just I'd be right now on the podcast, Alex Jones, saying, Lads, I fucking saw the aliens. That's what would happen in this podcast, because I'd have no other explanation, because it was too bizarre. But it was a Soviet rocket body, with several meteors around it. And how class is that, that a piece of technology in my pocket today, in fucking 2018, was able to give me that answer so quickly? You know, a Soviet rocket went up during the Cold War, like. There's another app I like called Flight Radar. Is it called Flight Radar? Flight Radar 24. This is not a sponsored podcast. I'm not pretending I saw a UFO because I'm getting paid by Night Sky. No, our flight radar. They're just apps I use. Flight radar is... Again, you just point it up at the sky and it will tell you what planes are in the sky and you can click on the plane and it tells you where it's going, where it's coming from. It tells you its speed. Amazing. So if I'm in bed and can't sleep and I hear a, 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 a jet far up in the air, I just point my app at the ceiling and it tells me what plane is flying above. Now, I enjoy it, even though that sounds painfully lonely. But uh, I enjoy doing that shit. So, this week's podcast, it is a live podcast. Now, I know what you're thinking. Blind by two live podcasts in a month. 
Yes. Uh, the reason being, the first live podcast was with David McWilliams, which he loved, by the way, because the audio fidelity was fantastic. It didn't feel like a live podcast. It felt like a conversation. So this one is a conversation with the author and screenwriter Roddy Dyle. And the reason I've got two podcasts in a month is David McWilliams has got his book out. Roddy Dyle has got his film Rosie out in cinemas right now. Go and see Rosie. It's about the the housing and homeless crisis in Ireland. Uh, told through a woman called Rosie who's living in emergency accommodation. It's powerful. It's beautiful. Go and see it. So uh, in order for Roddy and David McWilliams to come and do a live podcast for me, I agreed to them. I said, look, come and do the live podcast. Have a chat. It'll be good crack. I promise you I will put out your podcasts as Wednesday podcasts so that you can advertise your shit. So... That's what this week's podcast is. It's a conversation with Roddy Dyle. And it's good crack. And what I will say to you as well, just just a gentle, a gentle heads up that it's it's a lot of crack. It's good crack. But we do speak about issues of consent in the film The Snapper. And I just think it's a good idea to give you a heads up when something like that has been spoken about. Because not everyone wants to listen to that. Um, if you don't, go to an earlier podcast. Because we're at our year year of podcasts. There's 55 podcasts you can listen to. Um, so we'll have, I think we'll have an, an ocarina pause before I go into the live podcast. Which is recorded in beautiful fidelity. And is intimate. So here's the, the ocarina pause. So that we might throw in an old snaky unsolicited fucking horrible advert from for a Volvo or whatever whoever the fuck is advertising on the podcast depending on what you're into everyone gets different ads you mightn't get any but here's the ocarina it's a a special tune just for Roddy Dyle Roddy Dyle 
subscribe to the Patreon, become a patron of the podcast, and if you would like to, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast, and you can give me the equivalent of one pint a month or one cup of coffee a month. Some people like to do that, other people don't. Completely up to you. It is a system based on fairness. If you'd like to listen for free, you can. If you'd like to become a patron, you can also do that. Um, I appreciate it when you do. But I also understand if you don't. Right. Live podcast. Vicar Street. Raddy Dial. Actually, fuck it. There you go again. Yeah, before I go. I'm doing more live podcasts. 8th and 9th of November in Vicar Street. There will be two more live podcasts. Um, there's only a few tickets left for them, but there are tickets left. My guest on the 8th, I believe, is Emma DeBeery. Haven't chosen a guest yet for the 9th. Um, a lot of people asking me, please put out the podcast that you recently recorded in Ulster Hall with Bernadette Devlin. I will be putting that out. Don't you worry. It's just, like I said, I have agreed with McWilliams and Raddy Dial that I would put out their podcasts this month. Bernadette will probably come next month, if not December. And then I'm doing a podcast in Killarney in December. I don't know the fucking date. But down in Killarney, in, in, in the INEC in Killarney, sometime in December, there is a Blind by live podcast. And I'm unsure who my guest will be. But if you're in Killarney, come along to that. We'll have a bit of crack. Here is the live podcast with Raddy Dial, recorded in Vicar Street couple of weeks ago it's enjoyable now Roddy you're most famous for writing the film Pulp Fiction <laughs> <laughs> no Roddy's a screenwriter and an, and an author mm-hmm. yeah. and <laughs> you're just after releasing a film which I had the pleasure of seeing um, it's your first film in 17 years 18 18 years yep by the name of fucking Rosie no, just Rosie. Just Rosie. <laughs> and uh, Rosie, t- tell us what Rosie is about. It's uh, just a little more of a day in this woman's life. She is in a car with her four children and she's trying to find somewhere to spend the night. And uh, she has a list of hotel numbers and a lot of the action is in the car and she's phoning hotel after hotel after hotel. She has to try and, you know, look after the kids and... Uh, so it's a, it's a romantic comedy, really. <laughs> uh, and the, the strange thing about it, it, it was inspired by some, a woman I heard on the radio, Morning Ireland, one morning. And the strange thing was, and the arresting thing was, that the woman talking said that her partner couldn't help her because he was at work. And I thought that was amazing, really, that it was just a perfectly ordinary working-class family doing what they're supposed to do, you know, uh, rearing children, working, loving each other, and they just know where to live. So that's, uh, that's what the story's about. It's out next but week, by the way. Next week? And is that in, in loads of cinemas? Hope so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But what it, what, it, what it tells the story of is it's, it's not just Rosie's story. That's a lot of people in Ireland at the moment. It's... Ho- p- homeless people who are living in hotels yeah, if they can three find and them and or living ta- There's cars. three and a half thousand or more children. So you can kind of work it out. Three and a half thousand homeless children. 
So you can kind of work out how many families that would involve. And we tend to see lone homeless people on the streets, usually men, but women as well. We don't see the families on the streets. So uh, that's one of the things that interested me about it. But, uh, yeah, but it is what, you know, as a writer, as a storyteller, it was really important for me that it's about one woman. It's not about a composite of people. It's not a statistic. And I was hoping that, you know, the acting, you've seen it yourself, the acting is absolutely brilliant. Phenomenal, yeah. That it would put a face on statistics, you know? And that the children in the back of the car, they're extraordinary, those little kids. They're really, really extraordinary. And that would put, again, a face on the three and a half thousand children. You put three and a half thousand children in one place. That's a lot of children. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, I, what I loved about it is, is it had a kind of a, a Ken Loach level of realism. That's as in, nice to hear. It's, it's, it's entertaining, but mm. you've placed realism nearly ahead of the... Like, e- even the, the narrative itself. There's no spoiler warnings as such. Like, nothing particularly mad happens at the end, but that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. There's no real payoff at the end. No. Because that's real life, like yeah. what Ken Loach would do. Yeah. Um, well, again, because so much of it takes place in the car, the camera is bang up against them as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the camera really is squeezed up against them. They, uh, during the filming, the director, the sound man, and the cameraman were in the boot of the car. Mm-hmm. They were let out now and again. <laughs> <laughs> um, what year did you start writing that screenplay? Or even Two years ago. Almost literally two years ago. And when you began that two years ago, did you think by the time this comes out, things would have changed? I thought maybe, yeah, that it wouldn't be as urgent as it was. And... Uh, because it, it's... And, and it's actually the statistics are worse than they were. So they're it's, they're uh, worse. And yeah. the other thing I noticed too is, is when this was happening during the recession, there was a part of us going, this is terrible, but it will improve. Mm-hmm. Now that we're being told the recession is gone and we're back in some type of boom and it's still happening, there's now a more palatable anger on the streets because it's, it's be- like, I thought this was going to fucking end as soon as... It's the jo- beginning to grow, I think, yeah. I don't think we're in a boom, actually. Uh, I don't think it's the same as the last one at all. I don't think the Our wealth is trickling down. Hmm? Our expectations are, like... The recession was so bad. Like, what, like I consider it... I started noticing recently in Limerick in the past six months, people buying breakfast in cafes mm. and going, wow, look at this, it's like Beverly Hills. Yeah. Seriously. And then realised how low my fucking expectations were. Like, it, it, like, that's normal. People should be allowed to go into a cafe and buy... It, but it's the most important meal of the day. Yeah. But the idea that someone would have the, the spare change to decide, I'm going to spend yeah, no, it's eight great. quid it on, isn't a, on a fry-up. I think that really is the... It's not luxury as such, but I think it's my definition of culture would be just a few quid in your pocket. Really, by a few quid, I mean... You know, being lifted, the anxiety of wondering where you're going to pay for things is gone. And I think, uh, I, I don't think that's the case with a lot of people still. No. And uh, I think um, it's an extraordinary thing, really, when you, you look at, if, if we had a map of Dublin, and if I got a pencil and shaded in all the council housing, the estates, what we're called corporation houses, and if we started shading in Dublin, and all those vast estates around Dublin, many of you know, the people in the audience, I'm sure a lot of them grew up in those estates, uh, there wouldn't be an awful lot of Dublin left. 
because even in these dark, conservative, awful times that we were supposed to have lived in in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, the state took responsibility for the housing of its people. And now it seems to be that that isn't the case. You know, that notion of, of you know, social housing, I find the whole phrase insulting. Mm-hmm. You know, and the idea that working class people shouldn't live in close proximity to each other. You know, that somehow or other that are bad influence on each other. And that all these estates were a bad idea. Well, that's that, what... Uh, just... Vradiker came out last week and said something which was pretty fucking snide. He was... He spoke about the housing protesters, the Take Back the City people, and he said, what they want is a social divide. He, they, they're looking for, you know, more social housing, and Vradiker turned that on its head and said, ye want social divide, ye want... Uh, poorer people to live over there which I thought was particularly nasty like it's like well what do you want Leo them living in fucking cars you prick yeah yeah that's well put actually um, yeah yeah it's um you know it, it, uh, it's public housing you know that's it. get the state build the houses pay let get people to pay rent that they can afford and when they can afford more, let them move on, and somebody else can take the house, have a pool of houses. It seems to me, I mean, I'm not a politician and I'm not an economist, but it's as if the, ideologically the state, the current government, ideologically won't, they don't want to interfere with the market. But Varadkar, he's, like, he's a Tory in the traditional way, and that when he was running for leader of Fine Gael, that phrase he used, I represent people who get up early in the day. Which he wasn't quite, talking it, people on minimum wage like. on the six o'clock bus going into town. Yeah. And I found that, again, and um, your man, the candidate for the presidency, Gavin Duffy, talking, yeah. I work in the real world. And I, re- I was listening to the radio and I said, fuck you. <laughs> you know? And that middle class notion that somehow or other they have a monopoly on the real world and real work and hard work. I mean, I, I write fiction for a living. I make up stories, but I, I work in the real world. You know, so that prick coming out and saying that. And that, mean, that means he's qualified to look after us during the Brexit negotiations, by yeah. the way. Good God. What, what's, what, what's going on with these, these presidential candidates? Like, like isn't it a bit crap. mad? They're not as mad as the last gang. Seven years ago, it was really good. But, like... <laughs> I get Michael D, but like, yeah, like where the where? What is it about middle-aged men on I the was telly thinking it's, who it's the new like Ferraris yeah. aren't popular anymore, so you just run for the presidency to have <laughs> yeah. a fucking midlife crisis. <laughs> like what the fuck? Like who the fuck is Sean Gallagher? Like seriously, like you know mm. what I mean? Not everyone watches Dragons. Then I thought he was a Mussolini lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> What's going through? Like I I I I want to think that possibly they know they're going to lose and then off the back of it will somehow try and sell some business venture or something. But well, I mean, that's what very... Kevin Sharkey did, really, wasn't he? He was flogging his uh, new exhibition was, Do you something. think that was his, his game plan? I don't know. I really don't know. He's a, he's a bit of a daft man, isn't he? <laughs> yep. That Kevin Sharkey technique was a bit fucking... And he, he didn't understand what a president was. <laughs> Making these mad sweeping... He thought, he thought he'd be able to fucking go to the, to the Constitution and write new things into it and it'd be grand. <laughs> Um, you mentioned there, right, the story of Rosie. Like, I, I know people in Limerick that live in hotels, live in their cars, right? Mm-hmm. And you managed to truly nail the experience. Mm-hmm. Like, beyond 
hearing a woman on the radio and putting, trying to put yourself in her, in her shoes, mm-hmm. did you do any, like, we'll say, socially engaged research? No. Work with groups? No, or? I fell back on my own experience. My children are adults now, but it's, it's like when they were kids and you'd be under pressure, get them into the car, get them, one of them one place, another of them another place, another the other place, make sure they're fed, try to, you know, avoid the... Uh, the traffic at a certain junction, you know, all this sort of stuff, usual mundane stuff, and then you just put it through a blender. And that's what I did, really. And um, so I found it quite easy to imagine her uh, going through that. And actually, it's a bit like, you know, when you have a baby and the baby's crying or whatever, and you know the baby's bottle is right behind you, and you go for the baby's bottle, and it's not there. Yeah. You know, and it's not there and it's not there, and it's not there. And if you just multiply that by 100 and keep on going like that, that the expected things just aren't there. And I've been in enough really awful hotel rooms in my life, you know, touring places, that imagining... You imagine this, fucking living here. You know, and, and people think the idea of a hotel... I mean, ideally, it is like... A, it's, it's a bit of a luxury to escape from normal life and to move into a hotel. But, but the reality is you're buying hot dogs... If you're in the of- same hotel room, even if it's a nice one for three weeks or something like that, it becomes a bit of hell- hellish, you know? Sure, I fucking... This isn't a comparable experience, like, but... When I was doing... Uh, when Horse Outside came out, RTE put me into a hotel for, like, three weeks. And I nearly turned into Howard Hughes. <laughs> I did! I was drying my jocks out in the hallway, and... I was hanging a pint of milk out the window by a bit of twine. <laughs> because there was no fridge or, or jocks washing yeah. facilities, you know? So, like... Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a very privileged approach to go at yeah. the unfortunate ho- people who are homeless. Yeah, but when I had a number one single, lads, let me tell you, I under- understood <laughs> hardship in a hotel. <laughs> they had to sneak my cocaine in, in, in underneath the door. <laughs> um, you've won a Booker Prize, you cunt. <laughs> I have, yeah. 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 Which is... And you haven't, you cunt. I have not. <laughs> and I never will. <laughs> and I never fucking will. But uh, <laughs> the Booker Prize is, like, probably the best. It's up there with the Nobel Prize. It's, it's, I like in, to think so. It, it, in, <laughs> it is basically, like, that's it. Once you get that, you're sorted. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what I do with the questions as well, I, I get the questions from Twitter, mm-hmm. and someone wanted to know how did you, you won the Booker Prize for Paddy Clark, and you've been nominated? Yes. You were nominated as well a second for time, the van. You? Yeah. H- how did how did winning the Booker impact your life and your work? Uh, it didn't impact on the work at all. I'd finished. Uh, I was working on the next book, which is called The Woman Who Walked Into Doors, and I just went back to work on that. It impacted slightly, well, actually quite a lot at first. It was more like keeping the door closed. I I suddenly became, or people thought I was public property for a while, and I wasn't. But it took a bit. The most absurd one was that coming up toward, I won it in 1993, and uh, towards the end of the year, there was an idea, somebody had the idea that there was an Irish racehorse, I can't remember, who'd won a big, the Melbourne Gold Cup. Shergar. No. (laughs) No, it wasn't Shergar. That's the only horse I know. Yeah. Yeah, you probably ate him. (laughs) Uh, But, no, it was another horse. I can't remember the name. And there was somebody else had won something. 
And the idea was that they'd get myself, the horse, and um, <laughs> somebody else, and photograph us, because we'd all brought glory to Ireland. And I, <laughs> I hadn't won the Booker Prize for Ireland. I yeah, just happened yeah, to yeah. be Irish. And it was all sorts of daft things about I'd open a supermarket and stuff like that. And uh, Yeah, so, I mean, I live very quietly, and I wanted to keep it like that. So for about a year... I was making decisions that ordinarily I would never have had to make, and I said the word no more times yeah. in that year than I have ever said. Did you get good at saying the word no? Really good. Yeah. Yeah, I could stretch it to about seven syllables. Because that's no. really tough. Saying no, it can be tough. Yeah, but um, it can be quite enjoyable sometimes too. <laughs> See, there you go now. Um, no, I, I, like, that's a skill I had to learn. Like, one of the things in... Uh, they say to build your self-esteem is to learn how to say no without apologizing for it. To simply be able to say, no, I'm not into that. No, I haven't got that far yet. Without I always a, apologize. Oh, you have to apologize afterwards. So you're like, no, I won't take a photograph with the horse. I always but if, say, you ha- if, if you've yeah. got a goat, maybe. I write, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The goat that won the Melbourne goat. <laughs> uh, no, I, always, I usually write no and then semicolon, sorry. But I, I'm going to stop saying sorry now if it's helped build my self-esteem. There you go. <laughs> Um, one person asked actually there's, when the interval happens right? I don't, I don't have any timekeeping mechanism up here can, can someone at the desk flash a light at me or a phone or something and say that's when the interval happens is that possible it's Vicar Street like there you go <laughs> I'm thinking back in smaller venues they've got fucking lights in here <laughs> perfect um, someone wants to know general advice uh, your day-to-day approach before you could write for a living, like when you had another job, you were a teacher. Was yeah. Like, what helped you as regard like finding the, the time and the discipline to be doing that? You know, when you when you had uh, and and as well like I, June, I, July, and August. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Holy days of obligation, weekends, midterm breaks. All the hours after four o'clock. Uh, you know, it's actually quite easy. Uh, if you want to do it, you do it, you know. I think I, I've met more people over the years who say, I'd love to write, but I don't have time. And they do. If you really want to do it, you do. The best I got was uh, one It was actually quite harrowing, the, the story itself. The, it, somebody wrote to me uh, and telling me a really, really harrowing story, terrible, really terrible story, and wanted me to ghostwrite it for them. And the last sentence in it was, I'd write it myself, but I don't have the time. <laughs> Whereas I obviously do. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, if you... You know, teaching, there's, it, there's a lot of uh, writers started off with teaching. Did but you in know? Ireland, it's particularly brilliant because you actually get a quarter of the year off. But even with... Uh, we'll say what... Because like, I remember... I can't remember who the writer was, but I, I was reading... Uh, uh, Stephen King, he was doing a bit of... Uh, he's got a lovely book about writing. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about... He did have the time off, but whatever about physical time, the mental drain of teaching and living in an intellectual space while he's teaching. And <laughs> but somebody there owns a mental yeah, drain. It's Stephen it. King. Yeah. It's Stephen King sitting at the back. Yeah. He came along. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, I, mental, the mental drain of... Like, because teaching is an intellectual... Like, not only intellectual, it's a physical job. It's a demanding job. 
to be able to actually go, right, I've done that all day, and now I'm going to go into my own head. Like, were you able to do that? I was, because, you know, most of the year, I was a teacher for 14 years, and most of those years, I really loved it. I really enjoyed myself. I had a great time. And was it secondary school or primary school? It was school? secondary school in Kilbarrick. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Somebody from Monaghan just cheered there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I really, really enjoyed it. It could be tiring. Fridays. You know, there was one Friday I had... Um, a bunch of Lou Jazz coming in after PE. And I had them for an hour and 20 minutes. And they were all, you know, they didn't want to do English. And then followed the last class of the day. They'd just been in religion and they'd been watching some video of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, the 20 I love the Jesus of Nazareth in case we got mixed up with the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Why did they say that? Like? Robert Powell played Jesus. Yeah. It's, oh, it's from the 1980s. And oh, I know that one. That was the last yeah, yeah. class of the day. And I'd be knackered after that Friday, so I wouldn't do much work on Fridays, but I'd be ground on Saturday. So, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't, find it a, I didn't find it a problem. I really enjoyed the job, you know, and in a way it fed me. Um, you know, the first book I wrote, The Commitments, is a big gang of people together. And um, I think, in a way, from listening to big gangs of kids all day, I was able to do it, you know, I was able to visualise it and I was able to decide and I don't really mind, it doesn't really matter who wrote who says that line, I'll just go on to the next line and uh, you know, so I think actually teaching helped. And were you like consciously listening to the dialogue no. of young people who just, it was getting into no. your, your unconscious? No, I mean I've, I've read that I was, I read once that that's you know, that I started listening to people at the age of 21 when I started teaching But you never said that out loud? No, I'd been listening to people since I was a baby <laughs> Yeah you know, it, I've, never, I've never actually heard a conversation that I would say, that's going to go into. Yeah. Some, I've heard lines, and a couple of years later, I'd remember a line. But I'd never, I, I don't think I've ever written, say, a page and a half to get to a line that I yeah. thought was funny. I don't think I've ever done that. Um, well, one thing that sticks out uh, with your writing, like, e- even when you just, without even reading it and looking at the page, the amount of dialogue you use, like yeah. you're very heavy on dialogue. Yeah, you fill a page really quickly if you write Yeah, what, what's your thinking behind that? Because genuinely, I was looking back over it today going, fucking hell, I must, I must up the dialogue. This, this is yeah. a... Well, I used to measure the working day three, three pages. So if you have a belt of dialogue... Three pages, that's nothing, yeah. The working, the working day's over by a quarter to ten. <laughs> no, I just... Um, with the commitments, there had to be a lot of characters talking. Yeah. You know, you could, big bunch of people. And Ireland being Ireland, Dublin being Dublin, silence isn't an option. So they always talk, 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 talk. And I integrated that in the lyrics. And that was then, you know, going on to the next book without even thinking about it. I had my style. I'd invented my style. I'd made my rules. So it's a more... The, the Snapper was the second book. And it was more intimate. But again... Thank you very much. Um, again, father talking to the daughter. It's all people talking. And then later on, I wrote a monologue. You know, I started writing in the first person, and that's a form of talking. And, you know, so uh, the challenge is to try and, uh, you know, break the rules in some ways, and also to make, to sustain a story for, you know, 90,000 words where it just seems to be a conversation, you know. So uh, it's just one of the stylistic things I came about as I was writing. I really like dialogue. I like... Do you find it lends you to... Because you do a lot of screenwriting too. Do you find that that lends you towards screenwriting? Screenwriting, no. It's more about structure, really. It's more about scenes. It's, uh, it's more like... It's not really literature as such. It's more about instructions to 
directors, mm -hmm. instructions to actors. And um, do you know the writer, Enda Walsh? Yeah. You know, brilliant. And his characters talk nonstop. And then he wrote the screenplay for Hunger, mm -hmm. about the hunger strikers. And, for and long, there's long, no fucking dialogue. In, yeah. For long, long stretches, nobody says yeah. anything. And I thought that there's a man who knows what, how to write a screenplay because he wasn't filling the pages with people talking about being hungry. I found a lot of you that know? as well was... Uh... Oh, there we go. I'm, I'm going to finish this pint and then you can have a pint. That's um, very clever. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought a lot of that was the, the director, Steve McQueen. Mm. You familiar with Steve McQueen? Amazing. Um, mm. But what, what, what I love about Steve, Steve McQueen comes from a fine art background. He would have started off uh, putting stuff in galleries. Like Steve McQueen's, he's got an Oscar and he's got a Turner Prize. Like that is ridiculous. But with, with hunger in particular, I found that it was like maybe Steve McQueen and Enda Walsh sat down and Steve McQueen was like, let's do this with just the body. Mm -hmm. Because hunger is like... Jesus, that film is, yes, it's about the hunger strikes, but it's also just about the human body being yeah. stretched and tortured. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and back to teaching, I used to teach Enda. Did you? Yeah, he was in my very first class, so that might explain why I like teaching. Very good. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah. Um... So we leave you be for about 15 minutes and you can have a gentle pint. Does that sound all right? <laughs> we were talking backstage there, Roddy, about... Uh, I was asking you about your daily process of writing and you were talking as well about, like, you like to listen to music when you're writing. I do. So what's the shtick with that? Kind of, well, it fills the room for a start. When I uh, started writing full-time, uh, I, you know, I used to be a teacher and I'd write you know, in the interval, so to speak. And then suddenly I had all day, every day to Were write. you writing, like, in school? Like no, not in school, or... but sometimes. But very rarely, very rarely. But now, yeah, sometimes if I was Do under pressure... Do you find that because it was, like, a lump of dialogue, maybe, or something, that, that was, it was easier, or...? Where in school? Yeah. No, I was writing scripts and film, you know, film scripts when I was still teaching, and sometimes I'd bring in a bit of work and maybe do it at lunchtime, but not... Not very often, but anyway, when I gave up teaching, I suddenly found myself by myself for the first time with no company whatsoever, no voices to entertain me or to distract me, and it, felt, it was a long, long day, you know, I was very happy, but it was a long, long day, and I started listening to music, and it was too distracting then, you know, you can't listen to the Rolling Stones and work at the same time, it's just not an option, and then um, I started listening to classical music, and a lot of the standard classical music just seemed too familiar because it was all in ads. Yeah. You know, so you're not listening to the music, you're actually, you know, encountering an ad without the pictures. And so I began to look for music that I could play, uh, and I ended up now, I've written, I'm on my 12th novel at this stage, and I've written more than 20 books, and with the novels particularly, I tried to find... I have no idea why people clap there. Because yeah. you've written 20 fucking books, that's unreal. Uh, okay. Jesus. Uh, so, in the last few years, I've murdered 20 babies. And 
<laughs> it's easy. So um, I tried to find a different type of music for each book. And at the moment, the music I'm listening to is a wild... So it's a guy called Tim Hecker. Mm -hmm. I've no idea what he looks like. He sounds like an, an accountant from uh, Tarlis. He may well be. <laughs> he may well be. I have no idea what... There is a guitar in this new record of his, but I've no idea what he does. I went to see uh, a, a, another musician I listen to a lot when I'm working, a fellow called William Bozinski, and he was playing in Belfast. And out of curiosity, I wanted to see... I went up to Belfast to see him. And it's him and two laptops, basically, which he, he calls them My Girls. <laughs> and it was just... And he, uh, he's not a young lad. He's the same age as myself. And he just stood behind the laptops and, and most of the people in the room walked out. And I thought, well, this is great. This is brilliant because it, it, I, I now have a visual idea of what he does. And what he does is he flutes around with laptops. <laughs> but the music that he produces is brilliant. And I think... Uh, I, I go for a lot of that. I find when I, when a lot of the music, I, I, I look for it first on Spotify, and it's that type of stuff that less than a thousand people in the world have yeah. listened to. It's part snobbery, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm listening to music that nobody else has ever heard, and they're not bright enough to appreciate it. That's like it. The, the, <laughs> the opener of, like the opening paragraphs in the commitments are about that. It's one of the lads that just, he's heard this shit. Uh, what was it? Not the Pesh Mode. What, was it Frankie Goes to Hollywood? I was like, he heard Frankie Goes to Hollywood first and he, he knew they were shit before or everyone else knew else they were shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. is there a bit of you in that? Were you a bit of yeah. like, a music hipster growing up? Yeah, and I, I, to my shame now, I, uh, stuff I dismissed. We used, to call, we used to dismiss music as commercial. Yeah. Like, if the poor fuckers made a living. <laughs> uh, we just hated them. And... I'll admit now that Tears for Fears are actually really good. Yeah. But just sneered at them when they were in their heyday, when they were young. You know, they're, I think they're probably a bit younger than me, but, you know, just sneered at them. And actually, their music is just brilliant. It's fantastic. Like, yeah. um, one thing I noticed recently, if you listen to the start of Everybody Rules the World, Unreal Song, it's the same as the start of... Um, Fucking Michael Jackson, the way you make me feel. And it, it is, it's the exact same. Listen to the two of them. Which came first? Uh, I thought that they were copying Michael Jackson. Turns out Quincy Jones was in a studio next to Tears for Fears and he nicked it off Tears for Fears. But black musicians are always robbing white musicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tradition. <laughs> that's the whole story. Read the story of the blues. It's all these <laughs> black guys. <laughs> All these white slaves in the far south, in the deep south. Did you, were you into the blues at any point? Sorry, I didn't. Did you get into the blues? Oh, I love the blues. I play the blues a lot, yeah. What type of stuff were you into when you were young, Flat? Oh. Actually, uh, yeah, here's a question. B.B. King more than anybody else. So, so. growing up in, in Dublin, in, uh, you, you'd have been a teenager when this, 70s, 80s? I was a teenager in the 70s. So, with discerning tastes in music, how the fuck did you get your hands on stuff that was rare? I didn't. I don't think I did. I don't know. There were loads of record shops. It was records, you know, it was vinyl. But how would you find something? like? like well, I I'll tell you, there was a guy called George Murray and he had a shop on Grafton Street. And just as an example, and he, I, I can't remember, there was another fellow who worked with him, uh, a milkman by day and a record lover by every other aspect of his life. 
And we'd go in, we were in school, we'd go in most weekends and we'd, you know, go up into the shop and you could stay all day listening to music. They didn't want, they weren't, you know, pushed if you bought And how something. would that work? Like, would there be a turntable and you, you could yeah, say, they'd know, get a Well, they'd, they'd play it, but this guy, Derek, his name was, and it was one day Derek said, you've got to listen to this guy, and it was Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And it was The Wild, The Innocent and The East Street Shuffle. It was before he became it. And he put it on, and it's hard to imagine hearing that for the first time ever, you know? Yeah. We were 15 or 16. And, uh, you know, so much of those, those songs now are, you know, are part of our cultural heritage almost. But when you hear it the first time, it was just extraordinary. And that wasn't all that unusual. You'd hear, you know, there was the sound seller, Pat... Uh, can't remember his surname, the sound seller there on Nassau Street. And uh, there were a lot of good record shops where they would play music. And again, ideally, they'd like you to buy it, but they didn't mind if a gang of young fellas came in and just were listening, you know? It would end up in a sale someday, probably, yeah. Eventually, if eventually, you avoided yeah. it eventually, yeah, they, you'd get it for less and than And then the quit. tapes came in. Because I had older brothers and they said that they used to, in Limerick, yeah. and then what would happen is you'd go in the daytime, you'd buy an LP... You'd go home and put it onto a uh, cassette. Then you'd run back to the shop by the end of the day and say, "My sister bought me the same one. It's my birthday." Can I? And and that ruined that culture. How often can you do that, though? You put on wigs. How many sisters could you? <laughs> yeah. And you have a gang of sisters. But, you have Twelve sisters. Yeah, like I mean, I know I'm always like Van Morrison said that um, the way that he was able to hear like decent blues is that wherever he was living up the north was near a U.S. Army base. And they used to play uh, radio just for the, for the black soldiers. Yeah. And he used to be able to tune in and hear, like, well, Robert Johnson or fucking Son House, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, things like that. Do you know the song, R.E.M., an early song, Radio Free Europe? Yes. Well, I, re- I remember listening to Radio Free Europe. Was that the one that was on a boat? No. It was actually, uh, you know, they were broadcasting, I think, in part as a propaganda exercise across the Iron Curtain so that people on the other side of the Iron Curtain could... F- they were trying music. to give him a blast of Western culture. Yeah, yeah, and it was brilliant. It was absolutely Listen brilliant. to the Beatles and buy a can so, of Coke. Yeah, in the 70s. I'm guessing they were trying to topple communism yeah. with fucking Western yeah, yeah. music, yeah. Yeah, but it, you know, it's probably the best way to go about it. And, uh, yeah, and, and the, the pirate stations was another thing. Um, Radio Caroline, you couldn't often get a good reception. But one of my sisters lived in uh, The Hague in the 70s. And I went to, uh, to, this was 1977, and, uh, you know, The Hague was much nearer to where the boat, Radio Caroline, was. And the songs, again, like, it was The Pistols, it was Debbie Harry and Blondie. Again, Blondie became part of the soundtrack of the world, but before that, when you hear it the first time, it's just amazing, really. So, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in the air, a lot of variety in the air. And it's a bit like films. You go to a film, you'd see it once. And if you really liked it, you might go again, but that was the end of it because there were no, we didn't have videotapes or anything like that yeah. back then. So you just saw the thing, and that was the ones. Was and of course, that gave it so much more emotional and cultural value because it's like a rare jewel. It was different to an extent, like, you know, because now I know that kids can recite an entire film off by heart, and that's a different sort of affection for a film. But if I think of the one, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which I would have seen when, maybe when I was 18... And I, I think I've seen it since, but my recollection of it is so vivid that I don't think I really need to see it. Yeah. But I didn't see it on video. I went to it, and the only other option was to go to it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, wasn't, it was never going to be on uh, And then Netflix you have to battle, well, am I going to pay for a ticket to see it again or see something else? Because mm. it's interesting, one thing that's kind of disappeared from culture 
is catchphrases. Like, if you think back to, we'll say, the great sketch comedy shows of the 90s, we'll say, even, even fucking Father Ted, people would watch Father Ted or they would watch The Fast Show or something like that on TV, go to the pub, and you'd have some annoying prick there roaring yeah. catchphrases from the television. Yeah. You're, talking to, you're talking about my best friends there now. Yeah, but like uh, that, that was a, a hugely popular form of discourse. Yeah. That's gone. Like if, if you try and do a catchphrase from something you saw on TV now, they'd think you're mad because what's the point? You can go onto YouTube and watch it over and over again. And there, was, there was another aspect of it as well. If you watch telly, it was in the knowledge that everybody was watching it at the exact same time. Yeah. You couldn't, you know, queue up episodes of a series and watch them all at the same time. It was on once a week. If you didn't see it, you missed it. And that was it. You didn't have an option. You'd never see it again. And so if you were watching, say, as I was when I was in school, Faulty Towers, yeah. everybody would watch it at the same time and come in the next day, and it was then, don't mention the war. Yeah. And yeah. then it was death for the rest of our lives, don't mention the war. And my father you know, who watched that episode with me, you know, and somebody was coming in the door and he whispered in my ear, don't mention the war. <laughs> so it became, yeah, so you're right, catchphrases in that sense of... Uh, but do you, like, I feel that that's kind of, it's devalued art. In it. Like, if you look at the value of a piece of art uh, in relation to how rare it is, mm. that how easily accessible everything is now, it makes it, like, I get my kind of my ear horn off. I'd go on to Spotify and... Tr- it took a while for me to cop onto that one. Though. I've I'll never go, had one of them. I'd go on to... Sp- <laughs> I, I grew up at the, the, the very end. I, I, like, I, I, remember, I was young enough to remember when you couldn't download, right? Mm. So I got into David Bowie when I was about 14. And I remember the joy of having to save up £25 for a fucking one David Bowie album and having to wait another four months until I could get £25 again and forcing myself to listen to that album and explore it. Now if I find a new artist, like, I just go onto Spotify and I can fart through their entire... Their entire career in a half an hour. Yeah, yeah. There's no value to it anymore. It doesn't give me a buzz. I enjoy it, but, like, it's not the same as having this one album. And, And as well, like... Even buying an album and going, fuck it, I'm after spending 25 quid on this, I don't like it. And then going, I can't afford not to like this. Yeah. But seriously, like... Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. There's some of my favourite albums of all time. I hated them at the start. And there's great value. If you hear a piece of music, this is one thing I, I feel about a piece of music or a film. If you see something or hear something and you're genuinely indifferent to it, that means you don't like it. But if you see or hear something and it pisses you off, chances are you love it. You're just not ready to accept that you love it yet. It's, it's like they say, like a, a good gig is... Like in the early days, when, when we started gigging and no one knew who we were, the audience were either cheering or throwing shit at us. That's a good thing. It's when the audience are at the bar with their back to you, that's the bad thing. Yeah, it's yeah. indifference. And you don't get, like, if I come across a new artist now on Spotify and I hear him and I don't like it, I just move on. I, I, I can't, like, go, no, you're living with this for two weeks. Yeah. No, I like, if I like a song, if I like an album, that's another thing. People don't really listen to albums, albums are in gone. the same way. The, people, like, the, album, the ideal album should be about 40 minutes long. Or if it's not, there should be a good reason why it isn't, you know? But I wonder, you know, I, I bought Suede's new album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine that was a barrel of laughs. No, 
But it's brilliant. They were go- Do you but, like it? Oh, brilliant. And musically, I mean, it's so well textured. And I'm wondering, you know, because most people are going to listen to it for nothing. Is his How name Brett Anderson? Do it? Is hmm? it Brett Anderson? Is that it is, yeah. I see, I can't trust the man who's called Brett Anderson. It sounds like, he, sounds like he made his name up. Well, his parents made his name up. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's easily explained, really. <laughs> Roddy, I read on Wikipedia <laughs> that you became resentful of the success of the commitments. Not resentful. Yeah, I, I, uh, because it was such a monster. When it, you know, the film, I self-published the book. So nobody wanted it, and then I self-published it with a friend of mine, John Sutton. And then four years later, it's the film. Brilliant. I co-wrote the script. Absolutely brilliant. Really happy with it. They did a great job. Alan Parker, great job. But then I was... By then, I was working on my third novel. I, the, I knew The Snapper was on the way because I'd written the script. And everybody just wanted to talk about the bloody commitments. And Dublin is full of these bores who were in a band <laughs> and they wanted to know, had I seen their band... Oh, and God. that inspired me to write the commitment. Man, and I even me. I, I swear to God, on Twitter, when I asked Twitter this evening, "Have you got questions for Roddy Doyle?" Some cunt comes in and says, "My dad is is Georgie Burgess, and I want you to ask, does he know this man from this area? And can you ask Roddy, is is Georgie Burgess based on my dad?" And I, I need did, you know, a few more details. It was so, but it was so ridiculous. No, just, uh, um, I didn't even bring it to you. We'll I didn't make, even bring I'll it to you. I'll tell you what, we'll make the man's day, or it probably his life. Yeah, it's based on your father. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea who he is. But, um, yeah, there was even a guy who kept at me. And I don't know, what, I was just unfortunate. I turned a corner and there he was. I don't think he was stalking me, I just think he was there. But I should have turned a different corner, maybe. But he kept insisting that it was based on his band. No. (laughs) No. And I asked, you know, when was your band playing? 1996. I said, well, the film came out in 1991. (laughs) And it didn't make any difference. He still seemed to think that it was about his band. Which probably is a compliment to the quality of the work. I don't know. Um, Another person said... uh, I spoke to a septuagenarian blues singer while I was having a cigarette outside a dive blues bar in Chicago a couple of years ago. As soon as he heard my Dublin accent, lit up and said, The commitments! Wilson Pickett! Is Roddy ever surprised by the reach of his stories given their setting? Yeah. Yeah. The commitments has been translated into Hebrew. <laughs> I have a copy of it at home. And there's nothing in it that indicates that it's the commitments by Roddy Doyle. You know, there's no English. It could be the Tel Aviv phone book. And who the fuck? But it is... um, But isn't Hebrew only spoken by mad Orthodox Jews in Israel? Yeah, but they love the commitments. Um, what's Roddy's version of events with Roy Keane's autobiography and what's the story with the two of them now? 
I don't even I know nothing about sport. I don't even know the context well, yeah, for this. Yeah, I I co-wrote a book with Roy and uh, four years ago. It was an absolute. What was that process like, sir? Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Were you sitting down with Roy Gein? Yep, once a week. I we can't write. I'm going to jump over a gate. I'm not good. I'm not going there. It was a brilliant experience. He was absolutely brilliant. I that answer tells me that Roy Keane is litigious. No. <laughs> Genuinely, absolutely brilliant experience. Great guy. Uh, never. Uh, fantastic fella to work with. Fantastic fella to be in his company. Uh, he's sharp. He's witty. He's great crack. He's really, really nice. I couldn't say a negative word about him. Uh, I'm sure you couldn't. The book experience. <laughs> Do you not think he looks like the premier of Iran? No. No. Have you ever seen the premier of Iran? Have you ever seen him? <laughs> the fucking image of Ike man. I can't. He could be threatening us with nuclear war and I just hear it in a Cork accent. We'll move on. I'm not I'm getting okay. nowhere, but I, I was enough. being honest there. I was Fair being enough. honest. Um, one of the things that was asked most on Twitter this evening, right? And this, I'm going to read this out as, uh, in, in, in kind of in honor of Roddy Doyle, I'm going to read this out as the dialogue as it happened on Twitter. Because th this question was asked quite a bit, and then someone took umbrage to it, and this beautiful piece of dialogue emerged, and I was going, this is like reading Roddy Doyle. <laughs> so, where is it now? So, it, it, the conversation takes place between a woman called Elaine and a man called Dicey. <laughs> so Elaine says How does Roddy feel about the snapper Always being seen as this hilarious story When the undertone of it is quite serious Burgess raping Sharon And being a weirdo in general So then Dicey came in Sharon came on to Burgess <laughs> Willingly Willingly had sex with him And you're calling that rape So then Elaine comes back Sharon didn't know who he was. She was so drunk. Burgess was sober. Not consensual. He took advantage of her. Dicey. Bullshit. <laughs> and even if Burgess was sober, which I highly doubt, as everyone else in that scene was drunk, it was completely consensual. No doubt she would not have done it if she was sober. But that does not constitute rape. It's called taking responsibility for your own actions. Elaine, all right, accompanied by uh, an image of a woman leaving the room. <laughs> and then it just trailed off into a series of abusive comments from Dicey because she wouldn't answer. Oh. Your Dublin <laughs> accent is spot on there, by the way. <laughs> I'm not even chancing the Dublin luckily accent. Luckily, that wasn't a question, so I don't have to answer. Um, no, the, the, a question a, a lot of people wanted to talk about, um, we'd say, the, the, some of the teams in The Snapper and how they would be viewed today and mm. feeling that, like, what is that, like... I re-looked at the... After that conversation, I went and I re-looked at the scene. Now, I'm talking about the, the film, not the book. Yeah. What I was trying to wonder, is it consensual or not? And even if it wasn't, there was a hell of a lot of power. Yeah. Like, Georgie... First off, she was, she was pissed drunk, and all she says is, a man. Yeah. So she's like, any man. Yeah. But then... Burgess comes over, he's clearly, he's not as drunk as she is. No, he is all. drunk, but he's not as drunk. He's, he's drunk, but her we, bottle falls on the ground. And then when he's riding her, she says, is that you squeaking or the car? And I'm left with it, not knowing 
was this consensual? Was it just something she regretted? And like, what, what's your thinking? Well, in the, the book, in the book, she wondered was it rape. And she felt that it would have been a comfort somehow if it had been rape. But she can't actually conclude that it was rape. It was just awful. And uh, she was really drunk. He was drunk, not as drunk. It's a really difficult one because that, that scene, I wasn't there when it was shot. I was still a teacher when it was shot. But they shot the scene from different angles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's incredible how... I, I saw them all then in various rough cuts, and it's amazing how the position of the camera can tell the story. And yeah, So when the power. camera, for example, was on a, a, a crane above them, I mean, it was a scene that would not, you couldn't have in a comedy of any sort. But we didn't want that either, because it takes away... The, you know, because there are, those question marks are part of the story. Because part of what she's her triumph, really, in forcing the neighbourhood and her family to accept her story, is that she's getting away from that fact as well. You know, Mm -hmm. so if you had the camera on high, looking down at him on top of her, it robs the story in a way of a lot of um, question marks. And a lot of the the camera is uh, it's a lot of it is side profile, yes, which gives them equality. To an extent, yeah. If it was below, then he would have the power. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and so, are you uh, saying that like it was? Because this is the difference between between culture then and culture now. Well, ba- back then people were comfortable with kind of no, ambiguity. Today yeah, people want answers. Well, it's like a lot of people want. I mean, sometimes a good story. It's a bit like a shirt, unironed. I mean, it looks a good better. story is a bit. All right, thanks very much, lads. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. A good story is like a shirt. <laughs> Sometimes a shirt looks better when it's not ironed, but people want to iron the bloody thing all yeah. the time. They want all the little creases out of the way. They, don't, they want clear yes-no answers. And, you know, the reality is, in human life, there aren't all that many. Generally, I mean, I, I, you know, when we're talking about consent and rape and the rest of it, I'm as sensitive as everybody else. When you write a piece of fiction where it's there... It's all about words, and it's choosing words and actually taking out words and trying to tell the story in a way that allows the story to continue. Yeah. You know? And if you decide because you would much rather, as a human being and as a father and as a, just as a human being, I would much rather the story were different. But if you're telling the story and you decide to, to change it or to make it a little bit clearer or a bit more clear-cut, you're going to wreck the story. And that's the case with an awful lot of aspects of storytelling. That's the reality of it. And, you know, it's what we watch when we're watching television series. It's what we read about. We don't read about the happy stuff. We don't watch the happy stuff. If somebody says there's a great new series on Netflix, it's about a family that really likes each other and they do fuck off. There's ten episodes, and the soundtrack is really dull, but actually it grows on you. Um, it's not going to be a hit. And, you know, when it comes to sexuality, it's the trickiest area, really. But the question is, do you do it or don't you do it? In terms of the storytelling. Um, what I think is powerful is, like, like, Jesus, we're, what, 18 years on from the fucking... When, that was, when was that released, 1994? 19... 93. 
right? I'm shit at maths. How many years ago 25. was that? 25 years ago. Like, we're still having a conversation about that one scene. And just yeah. if I can get a hum from the audience, right? Because you can kind of tell from a hum. Not yet, sir. <laughs> who, who in this audience, who in this audience watches The Snapper and feels that it was rape? You can tell that that's, that's definitely not a... It, like, everyone there is going... Eh, I don't know. So, like, that, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of vibe now, but... Are I've you never s- had uh, an opinion expressed in that way before, so I don't know... Man, it's 2018. It's 2018. Yeah. That's how we do it now. We, we hum. The, the homograph. There's so no more just, referendums. You just go and hum into a box. Yeah. <laughs> that was unintentionally sexual. <laughs> All, the, all those box hummers there in Dublin, huh? <laughs> Dirty fuckers. Good name for a band. The box hummers, yeah. Um, if we have any more questions about that, I'm going to be passing the mic around so we can get back to that one, all right? Um, but I'm, yeah, for, like, to finish, I'm getting the vibe that you're of the opinion that a piece of art, you're allowed to have not answer questions in the piece of art, leave it in the hands of the audience to interpret their own meaning. Absolutely, because the readers and the, re- the viewers are an active part of the process. I mean, I've, I'm a voracious reader. I read all the time. And I don't want everything explained to me. Unless it's philosophy, and that's often just opinion as well. I yeah. react to it. I disagree. And it's the same with uh, a piece of fiction. It's the same with the film. Are you a fan of uh, The Wire? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Like... <clears throat> David Simon, like, said, like, that the most of The Wire does not happen on screen. It's all about what, what happens in, in the mind of the observer mm-hmm. when they walk away from The Wire. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just keep thinking of a piece of wire. Um, <laughs> there's and, a lovely scene in The Wire where... Um, it's the men behind The Wire. They're, they're the that's ones it. One of the police chiefs, like, it's four seasons in, and one of the police chiefs, for one scene, is just in a gay bar. That's it. Mm-hmm. They never address it beforehand, never address it afterwards, and we just have to go, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> but the joy of it is, is that everyone is now writing their own wire in their mind. There was a daytime soap in America where a guy said he had to go upstairs to get his tennis racket. And he did, and he never came back. And no one ever mentioned him again in the whole series. What? That's how they got rid of him. Really? Yeah. See, now that I like. Presumably he couldn't find I'm it. I'm just imagining, he had a tennis racket, and whatever it was about this tennis racket, he went up to the attic, swooshed it, the tennis racket managed to rip open a hole into a dimension. He fucked off into another dimension. Or Wimbledon, at least. Or Wimbledon, or maybe he became a famous <laughs> tennis player. Pete Sampras. <laughs> um, you wrote a book called A Star Called Henry mm-hmm. which the film Star Trek was based upon <laughs> and, <laughs> it's about a lad in the 1916 Rising who loves getting his hole yeah there's a bit more to it than that but yeah that's a good summary how is Colin Meany I don't know uh, I'll make it up. He's great. Thanks. I'd say he's a lovely man. He is, yeah. Yeah, there's a bang of gent off him. Yeah, no, he's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, a star, like, uh, 
I'm so, I love history. I adore history. And I was wondering with a star called Henry, like it's set in 1916. Mm. And your process seems to be very much, it's Roddy's head and you just do yeah. your own thing in your head. Did you at least go and read a history book? Did oh, you, rakes did of them. There's a whole pile of them at the back of the book. Did you not finish it? No. No, there's a whole list of books. That's, that's why I called it. It's there's about a, a lad in 1916 who does a, a lot of writing. There's a whole uh, list of the books I read or pretended to read. Uh, yeah, so, the, yeah. But I did you, um, like, th- that sounds different to your usual process. Like, you got to... Well, yeah, because, I, I mean, sometimes the books were just photographs. Photographs are brilliant. You know, they're yeah. very evocative that can get you there. But, you know, it's still fiction. I still made it up. But, I'd, you know, books will get you closer. There was an amazing book, an oral history, uh, by a man called Kevin Kearns called Tenement Life in Dublin. And uh, all the people in the book, he, he had an old-fashioned, I met him, and he had an old-fashioned tape recorder and went around and, listened and recorded the, uh, the memories of these elderly people. And it would have been about maybe 40, 30 years ago. So that probably they're all dead now. But there was one really... There was one woman talking about when she was a little girl lying in bed at night and she'd hear a wooden leg outside, a man with a wooden leg walking home from the pub. And I thought, that's amazing. So I gave a character a wooden leg. And it became... The wooden leg itself became almost a character in the, in the story. So reading fed the story, so to speak. And it was unusual because I hadn't read enough. I, I read an awful lot, but not necessarily when I'm working or for work. Sometimes, if it's unfamiliar, I kind of read just to fill my head with the, the world I'm working about. And that's what I did when Is I was Is that the that only piece you've written whereby it's, like it's, it's from a time before you were born? No, because Henry goes on then to America for another book. And then there's another one. So there were uh, three books about a time before I was born, yeah. But, you know... The, the, the and how, how do you find that process? Like, how do you find, like, writing about Dublin, except there's, there's trams? But it's still Dublin. Do you know? And O'Connell yeah. Street was O'Connell Street. It and was a lot Sackville of Street, sir. Still familiar, you know. Well, <laughs> the name changes in the red, but still, the place was still there. And, you know, the amazing thing is, like, you know, when... At my age, when I was a kid... I used to go down to Wexford, where my mother's relations were. I give up. It's only Wexford. And now it takes about an hour to get there, you know, depending on the traffic. Then it was a whole day's journey. And also, you know, my And I bet my you it wasn't just a journey. It was getting lost down ditches and shit. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. lived in a house without electricity, without running water. And a donkey and cart came and collected the milk in the morning. When I was a child, that was in the 1960s. So it's not, too, it's not too hard for me. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, with my father walking through streets of Dublin and the tenements were still there. The, you know, Sean O'Casey's tenements. Yeah. Big gaping doors and kids pouring out of these tenements. And eventually they were emptied and people moved to council estates. But that's my memory. They're there. I saw them, you know. And uh, so one of the few advantages of being relatively old compared to the audience or whatever, is that you do bring these images with you. So to an extent, yeah, I did a bit of research. But, you know, De Valera was the president when I was... Not a, a lot it, of whoops for old Dev. No. <laughs> no. Clearly no one from Claire yeah. in the room. Uh, so De Valera was alive, you know, very much alive and a big force in the country when I was a kid. And a lot of these men who were in 1916, these kind of old men with their coats and their black boots, they were 
alive and well and running the country when I was a yeah. kid. So, yeah, I had to do a bit of research. But at the same time, it felt like, you know, it didn't feel like history and It so makes much. it easier to humanise him. Like, I mean, Dev, Dev for us is like, he's not a real human. He's a thing. Same with Michael Collins, yeah. you know, or James Connolly. There. Or Jim Larkin with his giant brown hands. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. I can't imagine yeah. Jim Larkin as a person. He's just a lad outside Burger King with huge hands. <laughs> and what, what, what are you going to do with them, Jim? <laughs> going to do some socialism with his hands. <clears throat> I'm trying to see now. Have I ran out of questions? Hope so. Oh, wait. No, we're going to take this to the fucking audience, Roddy. So you're not... A- <laughs> oh... Yeah, that's all, that's all the questions to, uh, from Twitter. So I believe there is, there's not, not just one roving mic, there's several roving mics, let's. And, um, so if anyone has a question, you can elevate your, your arm into the air. It looks like the Pope's mass now that the This gent are. over here, there's a lad there with a blue T-shirt who's made himself very obvious. And look, the usher is... There, behind you, sir. Man, there's a... <laughs> look at him. He stood up, and he was like, I just stood up, but I didn't think anyone was actually going to give me a mic. It's actually grey. Is it grey? Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> was that it, man? You gave your... That, that was the question. That's All right, it. the lad behind him in, the, in the, the fetching double denim. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm just wondering, as the two years are kind of cultural influencers of uh, Ireland and Ireland's culture... What do you think of Conor McGregor? In I, uh, as a I, cultural influencer. Well, like... He threatened me very recently, so I... I <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, look, I, li- I like... Here's my... Like, I've said it before. My thing with Conor McGregor, I greatly admire his passion and obsession about fighting... He's, like, I don't understand sports, but I understand someone who's obsessed with something. Like, I'm, I'm obsessed with art and creativity, so I like when he speaks about that. When he says racist things and stuff, I'm like, ah, come on, Conor, will you? So, like, I, I get behind the idea of Conor McGregor, but he says uh, things that are a bit racist and homophobic that we could all do without, you know? I think, I think he needs... <laughs> he could do with um, having a conversation with some gay people or some black people. What do you think of old, old Connie I, Miggs? I agree with you. I agree with you about the racism. And I, I really don't, I don't f- understand the world of that. I don't watch it. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery to me, really. I, I'm a bit mystified about his dress sense, you know. His wearing Rupert the Bear's cast-offs doesn't really... But, um, but no, I, I, I... I'd love it if he threatened Roddy. Wouldn't that be great? Imagine that. His days are numbered then. Uh, no, but I don't, I don't really... I've never seen him fight, and I really... I don't understand that whole thing. So, um, yeah. Uh, but it's hard to avoid him in some ways. But luckily, he's not the guy at the corner when every time I turned the corner, he was there waiting for me. Yeah. I, I, see, like, I see him as someone... He's got huge potential to become a really brilliant person. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he, like he's dedicated, he's, he's passionate about what he does. These are all positive qualities. If he just addresses his discourse, um, he could become like a, a, a cool lad. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, 
this, this lady here with the stripy underarm. <laughs> Sorry, could you put up your hand again, miss? There we go. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a million for your How are you? God bless. Um, <laughs> I asked uh, um, Roddy uh, a storage question in Smock Alley. I'm not sure if he remembers A storage it. question? Yeah. You have a it question a that you come to Vicar Street with a question about storage. Uh, storage. No. Storage is one of my great passions. Uh, you but I'm not, I'm not going to ask the question, but it was about how often he prints out off his work and where does he put the paper. But I have a different question. Is that or a real a, question? That, I, no. Yeah. There's people. I, I have a different question. Yeah. I need to know about this, man. That's really specific. Yeah. Yeah. Why is a person asking you this question? Yeah. But I have a different question. All right. That's, um, that's a relief. Yeah. Uh, no, I think you enjoyed it. Um... So my question is that um, you wrote, a, I work in a bookshop, and you, you wrote a book about, for young adults. I think it's called Wilderness, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, J.K. Rowling wrote a quote, and like, um, she promoted it, and she was like, Roddy Doyle is a genius. So I just she want you to answer my question, which is... <laughs> Do you know J.K. Rowling? Does she still accept payments? No, I don't know. Or just know. flattery? I don't know her. And actually, the publishers were messing a bit. She was asked about, I think in some magazine, about oh, her favourite book, and she was talking about the woman who walked into doors. Paula and she, that's when she referred to me as, I reluctant to say it, but she referred to me as a genius. You are. And... Um, But then it's, it's, that phrase started appearing on lots of books, and uh, particularly children's books for some reason. Uh, but well, she was referring to the woman who walked into doors. Uh, well done, and it's really it's a lovely compliment to get, isn't it? But, um, so they're yeah. taking J.K. Rowling's quote about a harrowing, harrowing story of domestic abuse and then going, uh, putting that on children's books. That's the world we live That's in. That's capitalism, lads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This lady here with the front facing Pam. <laughs> I didn't, it was just an arm, like, what am I going to say? <laughs> yes. Um, Roddy Doyle is involved in a really cool thing called Fighting Words. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to know uh, what inspired him to do Fighting Words. What inspired you to Fighting, fighting words, words as a centre, well, it's not, it, it was originally, when we opened it nine years ago, nearly ten years ago, a centre in Dublin. But we actually have centres now in nine different locations throughout the island. Uh, Belfast, Cork, Galway. I won't go through them all, but it's growing. And it's a, it's a centre that encourages young people, children and young people, to write. And um, the inspiration came from a place in San Francisco called 826 Valencia, which a friend of mine, the writer Dave Eggers, had opened. And I went and had a look at it, and I was just spellbound. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So myself and a friend of mine, Sean Love, eventually opened up one here in Dublin. And it's been growing ever since. Yeah. Um, We were speaking backstage, actually, Roddy, and I don't know, was it fighting words, but you were telling me about some other group that you were involved with, and you told me about a writer who was in direct provision 
and I couldn't remember her name, but it her name sounded... Is, she's a volunteer with Fighting Words. Her name is uh, Malatu Okori. Malatu Okori. Yeah, yeah, she's a brilliant book, very, uh, a small but brilliant, brilliant book that came out earlier this year. Uh, and she was in direct provision for a while, and the, the language, it's English, but it's as if she's invented her own form of English to capture the... I, I, I reluctant to use the word, the argot, if you like. The, the, a pigeon. Yeah, because it's people speaking English, some of whom, you know, for whom uh, English isn't their first language, and then they're also talking to people. So they're not sharing. It's as if they're not sharing one or even two languages. They're actually having to share a lot. And she comes up with this brilliant, brilliant, very clear. It's easy to understand, and it's really very uh, rhythmic. But, um, yeah, that's who I was talking about. I can't remember the name of the book, unfortunately, because I wasn't anticipating this, but... Um, it is really, really I found good. that, like, eye-opening just to think that in direct provision you've got people from multiple parts of Africa with all different dialects mm. and, and languages, and now they have their own kind of language well, to the, speak. You know, the brilliant thing about it is that you have classrooms in Dublin and all over Ireland where that's the case. You really? Know? Yeah. Yeah. And it is the case. Where, and, and, and it's a brilliant thing because I, I've been... Now, Fighting Words has opened 10 years, so I've been the, experiencing the written work of kids who go home and speak Polish or go okay, home and speak yeah, other yeah, languages. Yeah. And they're writing English. And you know the way our English has extra elbows on it because there's, lang there's Irish bubbling underneath? Yes. Well, you know, these kids are also learning English as spoken in Ireland. And the Polish grammar and the other grammars are bubbling under it as well. So the, the That's going to lead to some pretty cool shit oh, it's in about on the 10 way. years. It's on the way. It will, like. No, it's on the way. That is going to be class. It's there. It's there. This gent here who not only has his hand up, but is making eye contact and furrowing his and brows to go, up. will you ask me? It worked, sir. Come here, blind boy. How are you getting on? I'm fantastic, sir. Just a quick one. Where's Mr. Chrome and how's your relationship with Mr. Chrome at the minute? Mr. Chrome is in Malta. He's in Malta doing a PhD on birds. Would you, would, here, would you not bring him down to Cordoba? Where's the ocarina? I don't have the ocarina with me. I'm not allowed to bring Why it outside the limit. Why didn't you bring the ocarina with you? I should have. I should have. I forgot it. Um, no, Chrome is still around. It's just, if there's singing and dancing to be done, he'll be present. He hasn't gone away. There will be more stuff. We're working on songs. We're working on videos. This lady here. I chose you because you reached into the air with three fingers and looked like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, this one's for Roddy. It's not political, I'm afraid. Um, we are just wondering um, who would you choose, to, because if it hasn't happened already, who would you choose to write your autobiography and why? <laughs> and also, Blind Boy, uh, do you have any spare vape oil? <laughs> this isn't vape oil, this is oh, water. Do you have any spare special water? I can water? verify that, I saw the water going in. Yeah, yeah. No, it's Straight out of the arms. tap. Okay, no. I'll go to the tap. Cheers. Uh, I. Right, strange, who would you get? Who would you get to write your autobiography? <laughs> um, and why? No, I, I, I actually the only person to write it would be me, and I won't. I. But there isn't, say a, that there isn't a decent pamphlet in my life. Like, it'd be really tedious. The book would be really tedious. 
Then I got up and made the breakfast. <laughs> and, you know, so, no, it would be really tedious. So what no, about Paddy Clark, man? I've heard Paddy Clark described as your autobiography. But that's, no, because that's by, by people who don't know me. They got it, right? Do you know? <laughs> so, no, I, um, no, all my work goes biography. into fiction. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no. I mean, there's been several books written about me stuff. I mean, yeah. largely unread, which is good. But, um, it's, you know, and even the, I don't know, I've no interest in the Wikipedia page, but at one point it said that I lived in Monte Carlo. <laughs> I, I've never lived in, I've never been to Monte Carlo. What if it was like a biography where it, it's Roddy Doyle, but they change your life story. Instead of an author, you're a man who dressed up as a crow and bothered dustbins. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... A, that's, that's going into that's my next getting book. Closer to the inner workings of my head, yeah. But I've no, uh, no, I've no interest in that. You know, um, I'd rather just work on my uh, my fiction, and I've no interest in. Uh, I just at, at at heart, I don't think I wouldn't read my autobiography. <laughs> so I don't know why I'd inflict it on anyone else. And actually, I think it's a it's a good piece of advice for most people who write autobiographies. In fairness, though. If you've ever met anyone who's saying that they're writing their memoirs, they tend to be the same type of people who shove coke up their arses. <laughs> um, do you know what? There is a roving mic up around the top, and I want to give the poor, the poor, poor people at the top the, uh, the opportunity. So can someone raise a hand? There's someone over there not only raising his hand, but his friend is supporting his elbow. So, the, Is there actually a mic up there now, or did, did, did I imagine that? Some poor cunt doesn't have to go up the stairs today. There's not someone upstairs. Is there an actual microphone up there? All right, sorry, people at the top. There's no. Is that a microphone or both or two wrists? I'm sorry, lads. Do you know what? This is like an, an inverted version of Shakespeare because usually in, in Shakespearean theatre the people at the top have all the privilege but instead now we've got the, the, the penny stinkers as Shakespeare would have called you have the microphone. Did you ever hear that theory, Roddy? No. About um, the, way, the way that modern, uh, we'll say the Sopranos and HBO stuff like The Wire and The Sopranos the way that it's written was inspired by the shape of Shakespeare's theatre. No, oh, I have heard that all right. So, yeah. like, do you know, if you look at uh, The Sopranos, are you familiar with The Sopranos? Yeah. Whenever in The Sopranos they're talking about something kind of boring and political, right, it always takes place in the strip club. And where that comes from is that in, when Shakespeare first started doing his, his theatre in like, the 16, 1700s, he used to do it outside the walls of the city of London. So he had an audience that was incredibly mixed. He had an audience of people who spoke English. English in the 1670s, hundreds was considered a very lowly, gutter language. People with money spoke French, because you have to remember, they were a couple of generations removed from the Normans. So the crowd were speaking English. These were, the, these were penny stinkers. They paid a penny for their fucking ticket. They were in the pit. And then the rich people from inside the walls of the city were slumming it. That's where the phrase came from. They all spoke like French and were mad posh, but they were also educated. So what Shakespeare would do is that he needed to keep the rabble-rousers in the pit happy and also the educated cunts up there happy as well. So if he had a long political scene, the people, the penny stinkers would get bored and start throwing fruit, but the people up there would be happy because they had read all the Latin classics. He'd have a sword fight immediately afterwards. <laughs> 
the action to keep the penny stinkers happy. And this is why today in like HBO, any of those things, you'll, if, if, if there's a long political scene, someone gets shot or fuck someone else afterwards. <laughs> or there's a set of tits in the background. And it's because of the shape of a building. <laughs> Do you know what? I also just answer, I asked and answered my own question there, lads, during the middle of asking the audience, so that says a lot about me. This gentleman here with the, the fetching eyebrows. How are you doing? Um, I just wanted, this for Roddy, just wondering earlier on, I met you inside in the pub in uh, Tom Kennedy's <laughs> at the bar. Just thinking earlier on... Um, as a man, as a, as a person who grew up in the north side of Dublin, I'm in my 30s now, and when I look at the social changes, you're, I think it was a snapper was on a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago on TV, and when I look at the changes that I see around Dublin now as a father, and when I when I see when I see a movie like that or I read a book of yours, it's a completely different world than the Dublin that I know now. I'm wondering, as a writer and somebody who commentates on the way that we interact with society. What has been the big changes for you as, as somebody who looks into the way that we interact in, in the city that we have grown up in? Big changes? Changes, yeah. Like Probably the most significant change is mobile phones. Really. If you, I think he was talking about gentrification. I know. <laughs> I know. Who are you? But actually, no, I do think, no, no. in terms of the storytelling, mobile phones. The storytelling. Biggest challenge for a storyteller. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. characters of Dublin, the characters that you paint, the, the uh, paint that you... You know, you know the notion that there are no more... The notion that there are no more characters is bullshit. No, no, but it, it's not the You're characters. You're one now. It's like, a way, it's you won't give up the microphone It's the way we interact. It's the way we interact. And the places that we are. Have you seen a change in that yourself? Of course I have. I'm 60. And if we hadn't seen a change, it would be seriously awful. So yeah, colour telly, brilliant invention. It was black and white when I was a kid, you know, and there was no phone in the house, and now we carry around our phones, which is not necessarily a good idea, actually. So the changes aren't necessarily just about Dublin. Not necessarily about Dublin. There have been awful changes, and so, you know, good ones too. Socially, the difference between Ireland now and Ireland then is so phenomenal. Do you think it's the same city that it was 15, 20 no. years ago? No, and Dublin, London isn't the same either. Anywhere else I've ever been isn't the same. I don't want to live in a museum, personally. Mm. You know? Um, are you, when you speak there as well about mobile phones, like, if you think of... If, the, if you wrote The Snapper now, Sharon's conversation with her friends wouldn't mm. happen in the pub. It would happen over WhatsApp. A lot someone, of it could happen, would, yeah, over WhatsApp. And someone would take a screen grab and the text would leak, and that's how everyone would find out. And the Spanish sailor. That, yeah, that's People no longer a trope. People to find the Spanish sailor. I, like, I don't think Spanish sailors exist anymore. I'm sure Spain has a navy. <laughs> but like, as a, like, that was a trope down in Limerick. Yeah. Like, down in Limerick as well, like, if Spanish sailor was a go-to answer if you didn't yeah. know the da. Yeah. <laughs> it was! Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, that was a thing. It's like, yeah. who's the dad? I was a Spanish... It was always a Spanish sailor. Yeah. And we're going in Limerick, man. There's only fucking fruit imports happening. There's no... Sa a sailor hasn't come into Limerick now in about fucking 50 years. So where are you getting the Spanish sailors from? <laughs> I don't know, but he was a busy man, whoever he was. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so a lot of the storytelling would change. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. The commitments wouldn't be the same either because there's, a, there, there's an episode, will Declan turn up? Will Deco turn up? Will Deco turn up? And that tension probably wouldn't be there because they'd know. They'd be looking at their phones. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenge, really, to try and incorporate, just from storytelling point of view, mobile phones and that notion of we know everything now and actually we know fuck all, but the same, it, we know everything now. So I'd hate to write crime. I'd really hate to be writing crime when so much is, you know, because it's really a challenge when you're looking at telly and there's so much... What did you think of Love, Hate? Boring. So Love, Hate, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. That was unreal. A series like one and two of that... Mm. And three. Four. Yeah. Yeah, but it was brilliant. It was phenomenal, yeah. It was brilliant, yeah. Except there's one thing with Love Hate, right? Because I managed, like, I fucking adore Love Hate. Stuart Carolyn, unbelievable writer. And I I loved series one so much that one of the lads who was in Love Hate, fucking Marlowe, that actor, he he played Danny Dyer for us on a thing that we were doing. (laughs) But, uh,. I got on to him and I said, can I have an actual script from the show, please? Can I see how it is written on paper exactly? And Stuart Carolyn, when he was writing, he was writing scenes specifically to pieces of music. Mm-hmm. Like he would open, uh, the, the episode that I had, very visually perfect, open with a shot of Daniel O'Connell's statue with pigeon shit on it and a specific song by Fleetwood Mac plays. Yeah, yeah. And that can only exist when it's on RTE. As soon as it goes to DVD, they can't afford the oh, rights. really... Music is The music horrible. is fucking terrible. So music the, the, rights are dreadful. The heart yeah. is gone. Yeah, yeah. The heart is gone from it when you watch it on DVD. Yeah. No, the music rights are atrocious. Uh, the television series I wrote, Family, we were, it wasn't uh, available on DVD for years The and years one and years. song I remember from music. that was Mr. Vane. There's a scene... Oh. What, what was the uncle's name? Jana. John Paul, yeah. John Paul, and he was sniffing glue around the fire, and the song Mr. Mr. Vane was playing. Yeah. Well, Mr. Ben, the rights, he was, he was holding out for serious money, Mr. Ben. Did that go out to DVD? Did that go to DVD? It did eventually, yeah, but the problem was the music rights, because yeah. it, was so, it, was, it was riddled with music, and then uh, the music rights were really, really complicated and expensive, and it's, a, it's such a pity, really, because music is such a glorious thing. And, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Have you seen The Family? It's, it's on YouTube illegally. Sorry, Roddy. No, that's grand. Um, it is fucking phenomenal. And when, like, Rosie reminds me of The Family. Yeah. It's that same grace, that same realism, you know? Mm-hmm. And The Family, that was based on Woman Who Walks Into Doors. It was the other way around. I wrote The Woman Who Walked Into Doors after Family. Really? Yeah. So you wrote that as a, as a screenplay first? Yes. Yeah. Fucking hell. One more question. This lady here in the green or turquoise jumper. <laughs> Your sir. Hiya. How are uh, you? <laughs> uh, this is kind of a boring question, but uh, if you could choose, you both love a tune, so if you could choose any band or singer, dead or alive, to see live in their prime, what would it be? I'm glad you expanded on that because yeah, when, no. <laughs> when I heard it in your Scottish accent, I was like, both of ye love a chin. <laughs> I'm like, I'd never espouse my love for chins. <laughs> oh, man, that's a toughie, isn't it? It is, yeah. I've seen, I've seen an awful lot of the people I'd like to see, funnily enough. But I'm trying to think, is there anybody... I would actually love... Um, I would love... 
he was alive when I was a kid, but I would love to be my own age now and able to experience a Louis Armstrong gig oh, yeah. in his prime. Yeah. Um, I would like to see the blues player Robert Johnson oh, play yeah. in a small-sized venue like the Workman's. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what time is it? And there was actually more questions after that because it was a, a rowdy Saturday night kind of audience. But a few, a few of them were rambly, so I left them off. Anyway, I'm going to be back next week with uh, your regularly scheduled podcast hug. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I hope you liked it. It was good crack. So, God bless. Have a good week. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.